I want to take just a few moments today. Uh, our text today is a rather lengthy text, so uh, I'm really going to challenge you when you get opportunity to read this text on your own. Uh, we're going to be starting at uh, Ecclesiastes. We're back in our series on Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 8 is where we will begin, and uh, we're going to go through chapter 6 and verse 9. Chapter 6 and verse 9. So, Quite a lot of ground to cover, but you'll see as we get into this text how how much easier it is to cover that ground uh, uh, in the way in which the the text is written. But today I want to talk from this thought, the never satisfied are never satisfied. The never satisfied are never satisfied. What a what a strange title for a sermon. The never satisfied or never satisfied. Seems strange. At first glance, you might say, why did I get up for church today to hear this pastor preach the entire sermon in the title? <laughs> the never satisfied or never satisfied. Of course, people who are never satisfied are indeed never satisfied. Pastor, you, you're simply repeating something that you already said. If this is what you're thinking on the surface, you would be right. Of course, the never satisfied are never satisfied by definition. However, we're going beneath the surface today. We're going to drill down and hopefully discover an answer to the age-old question of why. Why are the never satisfied never satisfied with all that life has to offer, especially in an age where technological advancements are so common that we simply embrace them without much fanfare. I, I remember when, when people first started talking about cellular phones. I mean, there was an excitement. There was a buzz. You can carry a phone in a bag, and the phone would go with you, and you had this antenna and shoulder bag, and, and then, then those big field hockey-looking phones, you know, not, not field hockey, field army phones, uh, those phones with the big antenna, and they take up your whole head, you know, and, it's, and you saw people walking around, and you always say, those are people who have a lot of money. They look at the, they got cellular phones. It was, it was over a dollar a minute to even speak to somebody. But now, now Samsung and Apple Release new phones every six months, and we never even ask, what's wrong with my old phone? We kind of shrug our shoulders and just go and buy the new one. You know, got to upgrade. And the phone companies know very well how to get us because they give us this, this upgrade option, and every six months we're getting the new technology. There's nothing wrong with the old one. But before we, we get into this today, let me share a word as to how we got here on this, this Mother's Day. Our, our last look into the book of Ecclesiastes had us settled in in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. The core of that text revolved around how we respond in the house and presence of God in worship. We examine the somewhat cavalier nature of modern worship. How many times we as believers come into the house of the God and we come in so nonchalantly. 
We come in so cavalierly. We come in, we come in not with thanksgiving, not with praise, but we come in talking about what we did last night. And yet, God has said, when you enter into the courts, enter into the courts with praise and to his presence, or the courts with thanksgiving and his presence with praise. But today we will look at a passage, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 and through chapter 6 and verse 9, that is perhaps the one passage in the Bible that defines disillusionment on a high level. Told you uh, early in this series that the book of Ecclesiastes is probably the one book of the Bible we could say was written on a Monday morning, right? <laughs> so so we, we look at this, and this passage talks about disillusionment. To be disillusioned means disappointment resulting from the discovery that something is not as good as one believed it to be. In other words, to expect satisfaction from something you think should be able to provide satisfaction only to find out that the thing you thought would satisfy you actually does not bring any real satisfaction. Now, this is like being incredibly thirsty for a cold drink of ice water. Then you begin to drink it in expectation that your thirst (coughs) will be quenched only to find yourself every bit as thirsty when you are done drinking the water. I don't know about you, but I've had a few of those experiences. If I use water for a metaphor, uh, there have been times when I thought things in my life would bring me great satisfaction. Do I have any witnesses there and found out later that they didn't? Let me just make it plain. You found out later that that person did not bring you the level of satisfaction you thought that you would get you thought that this this purchase that you made would bring you this great satisfaction it was something that you had to have and yet you found yourself still wanting after that particular purchase so before we really <clears throat> delve into what the preacher teacher Solomon has to say in this rather long but centrally themed passage allow me to say a word about hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst are two of the strongest urges in the human experience. Hunger and thirst are really important desires in the human experience. They are built into our nature. God gave us the desires of hunger and thirst in order to make sure that we would seek that which would sustain us on a physical as well as a spiritual level. Now, physically speaking, hunger and thirst ensure that our bodies tell our brains that it's time to eat or to drink in order to sustain our lives. We go through real physical changes when we are hungry and thirsty. Hunger brings a growling stomach. If it happens, don't say anything when your neighbor's sitting there, just overlook it. (laughs) Hunger brings a growling stomach and thirst brings a dry mouth, which is why I'm taking a drink right now. But these two desires force you to notice them. You can't ignore hunger and thirst for too long. On a spiritual level, hunger and thirst also 
impact our walk with the Lord. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Hunger and thirst drive you to seek satisfaction. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Hunger and thirst, two strong desires which we are very familiar. Jesus uses them in that passage to illustrate how we should be pursuing righteousness. Just as our physical hunger and thirst drives the sustaining of our spiritual or sustaining of our physical man, so should our spiritual man be sustained by a strong powerful desire for righteousness. The Greek word for righteousness there means whatever is right or just in itself. But here's the part of the definition I really like. It also means whatever conforms to the revealed will of God. So if you are pursuing that which gives you satisfaction, you should know right today that for the Christian, the revealed will of God is what we should pursue because that will give you the greatest satisfaction. Hunger and thirst are so strong, they both have crept into the euphemistic or euphemistic dynamic in the English language. For example, when someone desires success, we might say they are hungry for success. On the urban streets, we use the word thirsty to describe someone who wants something or someone really bad. We might say, dude, <laughs> you real thirsty. <laughs> And so that, that, that whole idea helps us understand how these, these two desires, hunger and thirst, drive us and push us in a direction. But no matter how much we satisfy our physical hunger and thirst in a normal, healthy body, we will get hungry and thirsty again. We will need to eat and to drink. Repeating this experience as long as we are alive because that is what helps keep our physical bodies alive. No matter how much I eat or drink, I will need to do it repeatedly. And for me, it becomes such a habit that I do it too much. <laughs> Amen. But you will never, as long as you're alive, be satisfied no matter how great that meal was. And some of us could think right now of some really great meals that we have, have, have had in our lives. Steak and lobster and, and any great meal that you've had. And what do you find out? You got hungry again. Now, I kind of feel like if I pay, you know, 50 or $60 for a piece of meat, Maybe I shouldn't be hungry so quick. But the nature of hunger and thirst, man, no matter how much you pay for that meal, the next day you will again be hungry. So let's now turn our attention to what the preacher and teacher of Ecclesiastes is really trying to tell us. He's not speaking of a lavish dinner 
that once consumed, we will need to be replaced by another consumed meal in the future, lavish or not. He's not speaking of a cup of hot coffee on a winter morning or cold drink on a hot summer day. Both are fulfilling, but both need repeating. He's not speaking of a physical desire. He's really calling our attention to the longing of our spirit. Our inner desire to find something to satisfy that which we lost long ago in the Garden of Eden. We lost our connection to a loving, righteous, just, magnificent, wonderful, omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent God. Seemed like two or three folks ought to be a little more excited about, about that. Amen. Since the disconnect, since the disconnect in Eden, our spirits search high and low, east and west, north and south, to find something to fill that void. We are looking in the only place we can search, and that is our natural world. Everybody say natural world. We're looking in the natural world to find something that feeds our spirit or quenches an incredible thirst that we have for the presence of the holy. We were made in the image of the holy. We are made for the pleasure of the holy. And we are designed, brothers and sisters, to worship and to love the holy. That's why. That's why nothing can seemingly fill that gap, that longing in your life, but God himself. Sin interrupted the line. Sin cut us off and left us with a dial tone with no number to dial. Have you ever had that experience? Pick up the phone, dial tone, you forget who you're going to dial. Now, I know your cell phone doesn't have a dial tone. I get that. But in the old days... <laughs> We used to have house phones, <laughs> and we had a dial tone. I'd go, I, I, who am I going to? And you have a dial tone, but no number to dial. And that's just how sin has left the human experience. We know that if we pick this up, that should make a difference, but it does not because we don't know the number without Christ. The teacher-preacher of Ecclesiastes masterfully captures the resulting disillusionment of a journey towards satisfaction, a satisfaction that remains elusive. The preacher-teacher so wonderfully and completely captures the conundrum of this disillusionment that if, if Mick Jagger said uh, uh, that the song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, was based on this text, I might be inclined to believe him. The never satisfied, our truth never satisfied. Ecclesiastes 5 and 8, verses 5 through 8, 6 through 9, chapter 6, verse 9. That passage concludes the first half of the book of Ecclesiastes. And this text follows a literary pattern known as a chiasm. Now, this is not something that you're necessarily going to have to remember, but it's just so that we can understand how this text flows. 
Chiastic structure is a literary technique in narrative motifs and other textual passages. An example of chiastic structure would be two ideals, A and B, together with variants of those ideals, A and B, being presented as A, B, B, A. So in other words, as you're reading, you get an ideal, you get the second ideal, you get the variant of the second ideal, and then the variant of the first idea. So it's A, B, B, A. Now that just gave you a little bit of hermeneutics 101. <laughs> this text follows a pattern that says A, B, C, D, then C, B, A. That's the structure of this text. So if you look at chapter 5, verse 8, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9, that's what you will find. You'll find A, B, C, D in the middle, then C, B, A on the way out of that, that passage. Now, writers did this on purpose because they were trying to emphasize an important point. Notice that D is in the middle. It is in the middle of this section that we find that golden nugget that gives us the key to the passage. The interpretation of this text has a pattern. You have instruction, then you have reason, then you have a proverb. But before I reveal that golden nugget to you, let us look at the, te- at the teacher's examples here of the never satisfied. First, we're going to get into two examples of people who are never satisfied. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8 through 12, here's what we find. If you see in a province the impression, the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. So here's, here's the instruction. Here's the instruction. Do not be amazed at the oppression of the poor. So when we look at society, now why should we not be amazed? For every believer in here, if we understand the wretched effect that sin has had on this world, do not be amazed that there are people that will take advantage of those in poverty. So the preacher teacher here is saying, and sometimes, sometimes it's hard not to be amazed because we see such devastating advantage being taken of people who, who are in poverty. We see governments around this world that, that take advantage of those people who don't even have enough food to eat. We see it in our own country that there is some advantage taken Regarding the poor. But the preacher says, don't be amazed by that. And here's the reason. High officials are watched by higher officials. What does that mean? It means that when some government official takes advantage, there's another government official watching who's higher who says, I need a cut too. Ah, didn't know the Bible talked about that, did you? So, so you have one person getting uh, uh, taking advantage of those who are oppressed, who are the poor, and then the other one over there says, "Well, I'm some," and then there's somebody higher than that. Now you understand this when you look at verse nine. It says, "But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields." So, so 
before we get too, too messed up over this advantage taking by government and government officials, understand this. What, what the teacher preacher is saying here is that there's, a, there's some benefit for this. Now, what could that benefit possibly be? Anybody who's corrupt wouldn't want the field to dry up. That's going to catch up with you when you get home. Anybody who's over corruption doesn't want what's feeding them to run out. So what, what does he say? He says it's, it's really kind of a good thing that you have a king that wants to keep the field cultivated. The king wants to continue to feed what is feeding him. And so he says, those people, those people may never be satisfied. The king may still be an advantage. The king is motivated to make sure the land is plentiful because the king has a self-interest in that motivation. Now, here's the proverb that he gives us in, in verse 10. Look at what he says. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. So in all of this advantage taking of those who are poor, all of this, give me my cut, got to have it, all of that, and you still will never be satisfied because you love money. He says you won't be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is vanity. That Hebrew word rises again, Abel. This H-E-B-E-L, Abel. This is vanity. This is a puff of smoke. It's vapor. It's striving after the wind. Now, I know it's tough sometimes to hear the Bible talk about loving money when you don't have any. You know, when you could use some more. How many of you could use some more money? Just throw your hand up right here. Yep, see, almost all of us could use some more. Nobody here is saying, I have enough money. <laughs> Yesterday, 469 million Powerball ticket was sold to one ticket. One. And I'm going to call everybody that's not here today to find out if they want. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but... I know if you won, you would be at church that Sunday. I know you would. That's right. But think about this. Even in all all of this advantage taking, the love for money will never leave you satisfied. There's no satisfaction there. The more goods you have, he says in verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eats them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? And now understand what that means. The more you have, the more people will will appear around you to use up what you have. Huh? How many examples do we have of that in the celebrity world? Celebrities that have gone broke. MC Hammer once had an entourage of over 200 people. Then he's doing commercials for bankruptcy and credit repair. Why? Because the more you have, the more people will come around to eat up what you have. That's why I used to go to Robin and Kevin's house 
on grocery day. <laughs> Single man, I knew when they shopped for groceries. I didn't have groceries. <laughs> so the more they had, the more I came around. <laughs> Amen. That's right. She, she, she glad I, I moved on. I would, I would know. I didn't mind help bringing the groceries in the house either. I'm carrying this food because I'm going to eat some of it. <laughs> and so that's, and that's the reality. That's the reality. The more you, you accumulate, the more people, isn't that true? The more people come around. Just when you think it's safe because your children are grown and out of the house. You can go to Costco and Sam's Club and buy bulk. And you look up and there your kids go out of the house with paper towel and toilet paper in their hand. <laughs> <laughs> my father used to tell me, stop shopping at my house. <laughs> Verse 12 says this, sweet is the sleep of the laborer, the one who works for what they have, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The working poor sleep well, but the rich find no rest. Why? do? Because they love money so much that they have to think about before they go to bed. Let me see what the markets did in Asia. Let me see what's going on in my 401k. Let me worry about what you will do with the riches that you have accumulated. But the working poor, the working person, finds sleep and rest because they don't have that worry of loving money. Ecclesiastes 6, 7, and 9 further illustrates the life of the never satisfied. It says, all the toil, and I'm just going to read these for you. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Verse 9, better in the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. And this is, again, the preacher-teacher illustrating to us how foolish it is to seek things that are vanity. Now, the second thing that he really wants us to get in this chiastic structure of this passage, he wants us to understand the example of people who find no enjoyment. There are people who not only don't find satisfaction, but they really find no enjoyment in life. Look at the the reflection that he gives us of a grievous ill. In chapter 5, verse 13, he says, There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. People who were wealthy hoarded and kept things to their own detriment. He says, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. What the preacher teacher is telling us is that is that those people who have this idea and can't enjoy the things that they've received in life because they're always trying to make more of what they already have. And it leads them occasionally to make these bad choices. And the preacher teacher is saying, I've lived long enough to see folks make bad investments. How many times has that happened in the world today? We see people with great wealth make a bad investment because they're trying to make more wealth. Now, I don't have a a personal grievance with people who do network marketing, but I do know that in network marketing, one of the things that is dangled before you is that here's a way to make more money. 
And here's a way you can do this. And it sounds so good. And we get involved and we start saying, I'm going to call all my friends and all my neighbors. And I want you to get this product that will scrub your feet. And then there's some people say, I don't want a product to scrub my feet. I might like rough feet. I don't know. (laughs) But the bottom line is we in our minds, we think that because we're in relationship with people, everybody's going to buy from us. And sooner or later, what happens is those friends you had will look at caller ID and say, I'm not answering that one. Because we're pursuing, we're pursuing trying to build wealth the quick way. We're trying to build wealth without work. And that's striving after the wind. You know, I was in, in the gas station, Speedway, the other day, and I was waiting in line almost five minutes for somebody to decide how many lottery tickets they wanted. I mean, and they were trying to play every game up there. They would buy one, the clerk would hand it, they do the scratch off, and then say, let me get it. I said, can I just pay for my gas, please? <laughs> so it's the pursuit of wealth through ways and means that are devoid of work that will bring you no enjoyment. You have to learn to enjoy what you have. Look at what he says. And, and he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Think about that. What father, what parent, what set of parents want to live and leave nothing for your children because you could not enjoy what God has given Verse 15 says, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. With all the things we work towards, none of those things will leave this earth with us. We are all, we are all absolutely not going to take anything with us. Amen. Look what he says. He says, this is a grievous evil. Just as he came, he shall go. Just as we were born, we're going to go out. If we, if we find no enjoyment, what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? When you chase things you cannot catch, what gain is that in your life? Jesus said something like this. He says, "Better, you know, what happens to a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his soul? The constant seeking after the things of this world and yet lose what is important. He says in verse 17, moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, sickness and anger. Think about that. How disappointing is it to find enjoyment in the things in life to the point where you're always trying to expand, always trying so hard. Now, I am not going to put a damper on the ambition of those who want to work hard and increase your, your goods by the work of your hands. God bless you. Amen. Matter of fact, let's praise God. Work, hard, work is, hard work is a good thing. It's a good thing. So please don't go from here today saying, Pastor said, don't work hard because there's no enjoyment. I'm telling you, don't try to cheat the system. Don't chase things that you cannot possibly attain. 
but enjoy the way in which God has provided. And so when we think about this, the last thing that I want to say to you today is that there is a path. There is a pathway to true satisfaction. While there are some people that in this world will never find the satisfaction in the things of this world, there are people that will never find enjoyment or contentment with the things that they have. There is a pathway, though, to what is true satisfaction. And that's what I press to you today. That is what I argue with you today. That is what I say to you today, that we must enjoy and know that the path to true satisfaction is to enjoy the gifts of God. Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, enjoy the gifts of God. Now watch this, enjoying the gifts of God. What does that mean? Number one, life is God's gift. Isn't it? How many times have you seen somebody and known somebody or maybe been that person to say, oh, my life is humdrum. My life is so terrible. My life is so bad. I, uh, and, and, and we've done that, haven't we? Just throw your hand up real fast if you know somebody. Yeah. Oh, I don't have anything to live for. I don't. Listen, life is a gift from God. That gift doesn't always come under perfect circumstances. There are mothers in this room today who I love and I respect because you chose in difficult circumstances to give life to your children. You knew the father wasn't going to be around. You knew it would be difficult, but you chose to give life. I applaud you for that. Because, because life is a gift from God. Everything that God gives is good and life is a gift. Look at the teacher preacher says this, verse 18 to illustrate. He says, behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with one toils under the sun for the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. God has given you whatever time you have. You know, as I get older, and maybe some people here can, can agree with me on this, I am tempted occasionally to think back over time that I wasted. Anybody have that? And the enemy wants me to live now with regrets of the past. And I'm telling you that God is so good that he will deliver you from the regrets of your past, from the time that you wasted, and let you find joy in the moments that you have left. What a wonderful God that is that delivers me from all my past mistakes and says to me that even the days that you have right now, even the ones that you've messed up, I've thrown into the sea of forgetfulness. And I've given you days right now that you can praise and bless my name. So life is God's gift. Here's something else. Whatever material possessions you have right now are God's gift. When the Lord made the world, 
He made the world for the pleasure of humanity. God's original intention was for Adam and Eve to be fruitful, multiply, have everything they need in that garden. They would never need anything. They could enjoy everything that was there and provided for them, and yet it wasn't enough. We still chose sin over righteousness. All God said was just don't eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. That's the only thing I'm telling you not to do. And we couldn't resist. But if you think about it, everything was provided. They had food. They had, they had communion, communion and, and, and fellowship with all of God's creation. The lion laid down with the lamb. The lion, Adam could walk and rub him on the head and pet him and all of this. There was no strife between humanity and any animal. You think about it now. I, I, can't, I can't stand lions. I got an issue with lions, I'm telling you. You want to see me run? Bring a lion. <laughs> I don't even look at lions in the zoo. I'm thinking of ways they can get out that cage. <laughs> this doesn't look as secure as it should be. <laughs> yeah, I can't watch the movie Ghost in the Darkness. I have to go to sleep and I don't even watch that movie anymore. The lion, so, but, but, but think, that's sin that has done that. Imagine what it would have been like to live in that garden with God knowing that everything was prepared for you and that you were in fellowship. So everything that God gives, our material possessions, are his gift. He says in 19, verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them. Think about this. God has given you the power to enjoy the material things you have in life. And what does the human psyche do? We start thinking about what we don't have. Amen. How many people, and don't raise your hand, got up this morning, looked at your closet, said, I don't have anything to wear. <laughs> now you have a closet full of clothes. But the first thing that comes to mind is what you don't have. Instead of enjoying what you have. Oh, I can't wear that. I wore that two Sundays ago. <laughs> Can't wear that. I wear that to work. How wonderful is it to have a God that says, enjoy what you have. Verse 20 says, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. You won't when you really have enjoyment and find your pleasure in God and the things that he has already given you without yearning for more, without desiring for more. We kind of get like, come on, mothers, you can help me here. We get like crying little babies. We always want more. We want more. We want more. And God says, enjoy what you have. Find joy in what I have given you. I've given you life. I've given you some material possessions. Enjoy that. Don't envy and be jealous over what someone else has. Now, some of you may not like this, but I'm going to say it anyway because I'm crazy like that. Look, this whole thing in our country about worrying about what somebody makes on their paycheck That is the craziest thing in the world to me. 
I have one basic principle that I use when it comes to other people and what they do for work. I don't count other people's money. Oh, you ain't got to get there. (laughs) If you really got, I don't count somebody else's money. I'm not worried about what the CEO of somewhere else makes and what that, all that. I know that God has given me everything that I need and the Bible tells me, but my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory. That's good enough for me. You will depress yourself. You will. You'll be disillusioned, depressed, upset, discouraged because you you counting somebody else's money. Boy, I wish I had Mike Marcel money. Boy, I wish I had what Mike had. And what do you do? You depress yourself because what Mike is doing is enjoying what God has given to him. And instead of enjoying what God has given to you, you worrying about what Mike does with what he has. Look at somebody and say, that's crazy. I didn't know that, but that's, that's crazy. I'll leave you with this. I'll leave you with this. Of all the gifts that God has given, the greatest gift that he has given is Christ. The greatest gift is Christ. And that gift is the gift that has the most enjoyment. If you as a believer can't find joy in Christ, we need to talk. If you can't find joy in knowing that he sacrificed his life, that you might live, that you might have an opportunity to spend eternity with the Father, that he reconciled in his death our sins so that our accounts were paid with God, so that now the great debt that I owed, the account is now stamped, paid in full, and it's stamped in red for the blood of Jesus has paid my bill. And God gave him because the Bible says in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave, he gave, everybody say he gave, he gave, he gave, that's what he did, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but they shall have eternal life if there's nothing that you've gotten today and you're an unbeliever you're someone here who has not received christ as your savior i encourage you today to know that everything that you have your life and all the things that are in your life are a gift from god now you might say pastor i've got some struggles i've got some difficulties are you telling me god gave me some hardships I'm telling you, absolutely. I'm telling you, God allowed some hardships in your life so that you could know and appreciate what he has done for you. How will we know how to praise God if we never come through any difficulty? How will we know that he can deliver if we never get delivered? Oh, I wish I had a few people to help me here. How do you know that he can heal if we never get healed? How do you know that he can love, that we can love if he never showed us that love is hard sometimes? You know it because he allows you to learn that. So every gift that he gives, but the most important gift, my brother, my sister, that has not received Christ as your Savior, the most important gift he's given you is the opportunity to know him through Jesus Christ. And so if you're here today 
if you're here today, I'm telling you that there's nothing that can satisfy your life like Jesus Christ. If you ask that question, Pastor, I'm one of the never satisfied. I can't seem to find anything to satisfy my life. I'm saying to you right now, right today, that can change for you. Because Jesus Christ brings satisfaction. He's the greatest gift that God has given. And you can find so much joy. Now, I don't, wanna, I don't want you to be discouraged because of the way us Christians look sometimes. This is a pastoral moment. You know. Some of us, you know, we as Christians, we, we look like we have everything but joy. <laughs> you know. You look at us and we're like, oh my goodness, it's Monday, it's, it's Tuesday, it's when I can't find any joy, my job is giving me the blues. Don't be discouraged by that because we're growing. We're growing and we're encouraging one another, I hope, to find joy in Christ. I'm hoping that we're telling one another, don't put all your hopes in people, but have your hope built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness The song says, I dare not trust trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. Let's stand in the presence of the Lord. There's a song that uh, we're going to listen to now, and the words will be on the screen.